All right, happy Friday, everyone. Today is September 9th, and this is episode 23 on all things Doxis. I'm Brady Volk, founder of the Volk Firm, and Nimble This. Today, we have a fantastic episode for you on PNM 3.0, 2016 advances in technology and what to expect coming in 2017. But first, let me introduce our panelists for today's show. With us, we have the diviner of Doxis, John Downey, CMTS, Technical Leader at Cisco Systems. John, great to have you with us today. Uh, it's good to be back, as usual. Yes, and you have fantastic audio, as, as always. Also with us, <laughs> also with us, we, on, for the first time in the show, we have the Ayatollah of Rock and Roller for Proactive Network Maintenance, the one and only Larry Wilcott, Comcast Fellow in Operations Technology. Larry, so good to have you with us today. Uh, what an introduction. The Ayatollah, oh, is it Rock and Roller, Ayatollah? Ayatollah of Rock and Roller. I love you. Sure, Larry. I love you. Okay, uh, that's great. Um, so it's great to be here. Uh, I've been a big fan uh, of you guys for a long time. Obviously, my heart still is in this PNM stuff, uh, a cable junkie from the get-go, and it's uh, it's an honor to be here. Really excited to have some fun with you guys and talk about this great stuff. Yeah. So fantastic. Um, so we're gonna, obviously this discussion topic today is going to be around proactive network maintenance, aka PNM. Uh, I would like to start and open up the discussion just to kind of talk about how far we've come from the early days of PNM, uh, you know, from where we were just looking at pre-equalization values from the cable modem itself to now where we are today, where we have full band capture, where we're looking at downstream spectrum, we're doing upstream spectrum analysis, we're looking at intermittent modem capabilities to find noise. So, I mean, we're we're almost changing the the term of PNM to, you know, maybe some new name like PNM plus or advanced PM because we're doing so much more with PNM. And, and I, I think we're getting just so many more capabilities. And, and so this is some of the things I, I want us to cover in today's, today's meeting. Do you guys agree? Absolutely. Great stuff. Brady. John. <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, Larry, maybe we can start with you. I know you're doing um, some some pretty good, cool things and stuff. Is there is there any particular item you want to open up with? Yeah, actually, um, uh, it's funny. You look at the board behind me here. I'm actually uh, squatting in a conference room at Cable Lab. So all that cool uh, formulas and jazz back there is not mine. I can't take credit for it, but it's like the perfect scenario for doing this kind of thing with you guys. And it's so appropriate. It looks like a few that one off him. But um <laughs> Uh, let's roll back into the PM time machine to ninth or 2000. No, let's go to 1999. Uh, and just for a quick history lesson on this stuff, adaptive equalization coefficients are where this all started. That's can you see an echo between uh, an echo tunnel between the cable modem and the CMTS on the transmission line? And then what, right? And that's where this whole thing started in 99 with DOCSIS 1.1. Uh, and I remember distinctly when this came out kind of looking at had no idea what it really meant, which is funny. And then um, I kind of shook my head. And um, the problem with PNM uh, or with adaptive equalization at the time was they used this eight-tap equalization structure. And the resolution was horrible. And that was really the first you know, technical constraint. And then the, really more so the problem with it was the early implementations of equalization were just really bad. 
we turned it on and customers wouldn't come online. Just lots of bad stuff happened. And um, equalization just started off with a bad name and it took years to overcome the, um, the stigma that was created by the early implementations. And here we are today. If you look at um, number one, just equalization as a concept, we can't function 64 quantum reliably without it. And if you look at the pre and post uh, constellation and MER that we see today in many, many areas of our, of our network, it's, um, it's a must. We, we just couldn't do what we could do, deliver the quality and amount of service that we do without it. And the evolution from 1999 till today and all of the folly in between in terms of industry adoption and operational adoption and uh, learning and uh, evolution is remarkable. And, um, uh, and I remember very fondly when I first saw how this could be operationalized in 2007 when I was visited by Alberto Campos and Eduardo Cardona. Uh, they came and visited and showed me the spreadsheet. Uh, Brady, have you ever seen Alberto's spreadsheet? Um, I don't know that I saw one on that he had on PNM. I did see Alberto's early presentations at, uh, at Cable Tech Expo on PNM, and I, I think it was a similar thing as you said, where I had no idea what he was talking about. So yeah, exactly. And, and the crazy thing is, uh, it's kind of um, history repeats itself. And now that we've operationalized it, it's in the tools, alarms pop, and people are dispatched to go fix stuff. And still to this day, uh, i got to be careful when I say this, uh, the interpretation of that information is very difficult. And that's kind of the opportunity. And this is a great like uh, segue into the evolution of where we're at and where we're going in the future and machine learning and all this cool stuff we're going to talk about about how do you interpret the data and what do you do with it and actionability and how do you, how do you translate that into business and, and how you operate your cable system? It's, a, uh, it's such a fantastic topic. Let, let me throw in some historical data too, or my two cents. And, and I know I've talked about it before with you and, and Brady. Uh, Cisco is one of the only ones that used a TI Intel CMTS chip. You know, everyone else is Broadcom. And we ran into some issues with uh, adaptive, uh, adaptive EQ, or actually pre EQ, the ATAC equalizer. And um, what we found out was that when you have different firmware, you might have impulse noise, the pre EQ could get out of whack. Meaning, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, say my MER, my upstream MER says 20 dB, I turn on pre EQ, it goes to 25. A week later, it drops down to 17. We're like, wait a minute, what's going on? Turns out the pre-accused is like pre-equalizing the wrong way or out of time, uh, getting the wrong coefficients. So Cisco a while back made a decision that we'd have like a, a catch-all. Uh, on the CMTS, by default, we have this on once you turn on pre-EQ because pre-EQ is not on by default for the CMTS, for our CMTS. Um, once you turn on pre-EQ, if the MER of a single modem drops by more than 3 dB, we kind of attribute it to pre-EQ problems. So we send a direct load to the modem, basically saying, clean yourself out and start over again. So it actually works well as kind of a catch-all band-aid, if you will. Um, I don't know if uh, Aris has the same thing, maybe they do, uh, but it's actually helped save me quite a few times. Uh, that's good to know, John. I've, I've, many years of doing this, and I've seen the behavior, I didn't know exactly why, and you just explained it. <laughs> I should come to these more often. 
right, cool. So anyway, uh, it was, uh, and then to basically just rein that in a little bit, that was some of the history. We, we started with the first Scout Flux implementation. That's our first crack at, hey, here's equalizers. Here's We didn't really know what the heck it was going to tell us or what we we're going to do about it. Um, but it was the, kind of the first output of that coefficient analysis. And we just kind of quietly put a little cool-looking equalizer button in the tools and uh, it just let people stumble on it with no fanfare, no training. I mean, we did a couple of decks that talked about what the equalizers did and how to interpret it. We didn't really know. And then just kind of out of grassroots from the field, which is uh, really, I think, the secret sauce to our success for the program, um, the technicians started picking up that cared enough about it and started engaging us by email and calling us and creating relationships to the field. And uh, and that has uh, that has uh, was a um, kind of an early implementation of this DevOps model um, by happy accident, if you will. Um, I still have fantastic um, uh, relationships with a lot of folks out in the field, and um, and a very cohesive uh, feedback and development lifecycle. So that if something happens or a feature or function. Uh, it's just magic when you get close to the field and respond quickly to that. Uh, but so um, we turned it on in 98 or, or 99, or sorry, 2009, 10 years, ironically, after the very first equalization implementation, 10 years after that, after having it out there and running, we figured out how to operationalize it. And then um, along with that came all of the trials and tribulations of uh now what? And it's the now what where things get interesting. And, um, and uh, uh, Brady, let me hand it back to you. Uh, you deal with the now what every day of your life with your nimble products and uh, and out there with the operators. Um, any anything to add? Well, yeah. I mean, I, so we got involved. I think it was around 2011. I had seen, as I said, I didn't understand it with Alberto's uh, original presentations because they were very technical. But I think it was when Cable Labs came out with their reference implementation around 2011 that we got involved. And the reference implementation really helped understand how you put this long EQ string into uh, their, their reference implementation. You get out the taps, you get out the in-channel frequency response. And that actually made sense. The challenge with the reference implementation is it wasn't operational. So then we started Nimble This, and we, we turned the reference implementation into something that had a database behind it, something that had a, uh, uh, you could start importing data, SNMP, polling modems and CMTSs. And then we started working with some small cable operators to really say, okay, you know, we see these problems. Uh, let's see if we can actually go out and find where the problem is in the field. And that's where it started to become really exciting for us. But... The challenge then it became after that was there were so many modems that were sort of non-compliant where we would pull the modem and we would get back a, and, and Larry, I think you coined the term, a bunk equalizer string. <laughs> and I really like that. So you kind of had to build up this library over time of, you know, if this modem, then that. So you can start dispelling it. You can start training cable operators that, you know, how to turn on pre-EQ, how to put the CMTS into TDMA, TDMA mode, because if it's in TDMA mode only, that the modems are operating as a DOCSIS 1-1 modem. They're not taking advantage of their 2.0 or 3.0 capabilities. So there was, you know, both a learning curve for us as, as a commercial PNM provider and also the cable operators as, you know, some of the things that they were doing weren't taking full advantage 
of the pre-equalization in the cable modem. So, you know, it's one thing to just understand the fundamental technologies of pre-equalization. Then it's another thing to understand the limitations because none of this was part of the DOCSIS specification. So there were so many issues in cable modems not fully supporting it that we later fixed. You know, I, I think you guys drove a lot of this in fixing issues within in the firmware and the modems and CMTSs and then and us also working with vendors and then also training cable operators on how to optimize our systems and taking advantage of this. And again, this is still classic PNM. So it was, it was really exciting then also to say now in the DOCSIS 3.1 spec, all this is going to be standard. So huge learning curve for both us and operators. And as you said, getting this operationalized within cable operators. So it's, it's you know, cable operators really, really understand how to be reactive when a modem's offline. We know we got to fix that right away. But it's completely different to say be proactive where we'd really like not to have the cable modems go offline. We'd like to fix these before the subscribers impact us. So that's very that's a big shift within organizations and getting there takes a lot of work internally working with operators. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Um, uh, John, uh, talk a little bit about your um, your early um, uh, introduction to PNM and equalization, using them to, and, and what was your reaction at the time? You know, um, I was I was going to add on to Brady's PNM. You know, reactive RNN. You know, everyone does RNN, reactive network maintenance. Um, so when PNM <laughs> came out, you know, my it's network maintenance. Yeah. And the cable industry was Secor Electronics, and um, and then I went to WaveTech, and so I had a lot of background in upstream downstream sweeping. And, and we used to do this way back in the day. We called it basically FDR, Frequency Domain Reflectometry. Basically, you're doing an upstream sweep with really tight granularity on your sweep points, uh, avoiding you know overlapping with actual channels. But if I made my sweep points tight enough, I could get better granularity in my sweep response. And looking at an upstream sweep trace, I could see standing waves. I could use the well-known formula, 492 times velocity propagation divided by the delta in the frequency standing wave and find out the distance to the fault. Um, so I was well aware of troubleshooting that way, but now that we have so many modems in the field doing this already, um, we could utilize and exploit that functionality, right? So the more modems we have, the more test equipment, the more visibility we have out in the field. Uh, so when I started seeing, and I was thinking at that SCT Expo years ago where Alberto was showing this stuff and I was like, this is pretty cool. And then I think there was a winter or summer conference for cable apps out in, um, outside of Denver, Keystone. I think it was in Keystone. And uh, he was showing me some of the, the functionality. And I was like, yeah, this is pretty powerful stuff. It's just a matter of operationalizing it, like uh, Brady was talking about. You know, you can put a, a paper out on the web and people look at it like it's uh, Greek, right? Uh, the smaller operators didn't know what to do with it. You work for Comcast, so you're a bigger operator. You have SNMP expertise, a uh, little bit more uh, resources that can go into it. So you guys really ran with it, and I was uh, pleasantly surprised. Uh, now, now I got everyone else asking, well, how can I get that functionality as well? How can I get visibility into my, into what's happening out in the field? And it's not just you know, um, uh, you know one or two channels. Now that the it might be five to forty-two megahertz, five to sixty. Now we're looking at systems going five to eighty-five megahertz. You know, it's uh, the spectrum's getting full in the upstream. So now we don't have much spectrum that we can just throw away. Uh, we're using close to the diplex filter, so we definitely need pre-EQ. Um, I always thought 
lower below 20 megahertz is a lot of impulse noise. And I asked this question to you guys during that panel last year. I said, is there any detriment to running pre-EQ? Like, should I not run pre-EQ below 20 megahertz if impulse noise could negatively affect the pre-equalization? And then I thought, well, if it's lower than 20 megahertz, it's real far away from the diatomic filter, but that's not our problem now. It's mostly micro-reflections, not group delay. Group delay might be a problem near filter roll-offs and stuff like that, but in the lower frequencies, we still have a lot of micro-reflections no matter what. And uh, I remember the one guy, I think, from Cable Lab said, no, I would run pre-EQ everywhere. Do you feel that same way? You know? Absolutely. Yeah. So you don't think the impulse noise detriment is enough to turn off pre-EQ? Um, no. So early on, and that's a good point, John, um, and, uh, and credit where it's due, the early implementations of pre-EQ, in fact, you can actually see them in like the post-equalization coefficients where there was, uh, it was constantly attempting to adjust um, like a, a nonlinear effect of an impulse noise that was present. And um, I think it's all just kind of worked itself out where uh, the, the burst receiver uh, um, vendors <laughs> have, uh, uh, have come up with the appropriate filters so that it's just not, it, um, they don't, they don't whack out like they used to. So uh, in general, I'll say it's, uh, I would always recommend using adaptive equalization. Yeah. And uh, good I, question. I, yeah. I've also had great results with dynamic upstream interleaving uh, in the mod profile when I use frequencies below 20 megahertz. That usually, that usually creates, you know, the uncorrectable effect to go to correctable effect in, in some regards. So it actually works out pretty well. It's, not, it's something that's not on by default, but I usually give a recommended mod profile uh, if people run frequencies below 20 megahertz. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of if it's raining or pouring outside, run around really fast and you won't get hit as much. <laughs> <laughs> that's Unless, a joke. It's going Unless it's a hurricane. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so, a uh, great segue, and uh, I think your comments about uh, how your early days of doing return sweeps and uh, um, kind of evolved and connected the dots when we were able to use CPE to effectively do return sweeps for us, and that really changed the game for return setups and return sweeps, in my opinion. Um, it did. It certainly did in my world, and. Um, uh, I can't remember the last time I've, I've heard of anybody having to do a return sweep anymore, just to be honest with you. Now, is that in the, both the forward and the return, Larry? No, or, or, return I mean, the, sweep. Yeah, yeah, the return sweep is something that I think is, is really going away. Re yeah. Forward sweep still happens a lot. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, the point was, uh, you know, that with the intelligence of the CPE and the ubiquitous deployment of all this stuff, I mean, why would you drive around doing things that your CPU can tell you? That's kind of the segue into the next part of the conversation. Yeah. That came up with a local SCT I was at, and I said, you know, with full bandwidth capture on the downstream, and we can use that term, right, FPC, mm -hmm. full bandwidth capture? It's not copyrighted. We're good. Uh, I remember that someone was saying generically we're going to call it a wideband capture or something. I don't know. Um, and I felt like with so much spectrum being used in the downstream, full bandwidth capture, you almost have a downstream sweep everywhere. But if we go to 1.218 gigahertz upgrades, you're probably not going to have carriers there. So you might still need to inject sweep points. Uh, then it comes down to where do you inject those? Where do you put the equipment to inject? I mean, Brady and I have talked about this. When we go 
eventually to remote fi now it's all digital out to the node so you have to inject the sweet points at the node somehow because you're not going to have test equipment hanging off the poles you know next to the node so do you incorporate some type of injecting sweeping carrier in the chipset itself um or do you just use the full bandwidth capture and look at the noise floor as a like a sweep trace i mean noise does get affected by gain and loss pretty much the same way right so if, yeah, you, normalize great, great point. It, if you normalize it then you can kind of get uh, sort of uh, 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 uh apple it's not really apples to apples but you get the idea a delta yeah, absolutely, and, and that's a fact. Um, but the problem with that approach is that uh, that's actually a great one. We should talk on the side about getting the patents on that. Um, but uh, the, um, the the problem with that is the filter response across the entire spectrum. It's very difficult to get a flat filter response across the entire spectrum all the way out to 1.2 gig or whatever. So there's a lot of stuff in there you have to normalize out too, which would be, uh, again, the, you know, the filter itself. So... It's worth looking at, um, but I'll tell you, it, you know, we call it a sacrificial qualm. You just put it out in the roll off and, you know, you can basically, and this is a, a great conversation for how do I use full spectrum 3.0 cable modems, and we're doing this today, it's fantastic, to characterize the roll off of the spectrum where we want to cheat and use 3.1 OFDM channels. If I'm going to put a 96 megahertz wide, uh, you know, um, uh, OFDM channel in there. What does it look like before I even deploy it? Of course. You, so, should, you should test the frequency you plan to use with the type of signal you plan to run. Exactly. But on the, uh, yeah, so you could just turn it on and use your 3.0 spectrum analyzers to tell you what the frequency response is, even without participating in the 3.1 conversation, if you will. But you can learn a lot about the frequency response and the fidelity of your plant at whatever frequency you're trying to use. But a lot of a lot of systems, I'll be honest, they're just sticking a qualm out, calling it a sacrificial qualm out in the high end in the roll off area, and it tells you a lot. If you're looking for here's, here's a good question for you. Yeah. I brought that same question up. I'll make if I want to turn on more qualms. The CMTS is now our CCAP, right? They have full spectrum capability. So do I turn on more RF? Do I turn on more RF? Is that your phone or something else? Sorry, that was me. So if I turn on more RF, can I do it without being charged a license? So think about that one. That's probably higher above your pay grade. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I said the same thing to my own guys. I'm like, I should be, as an RF guy, I should be able to turn on RF that doesn't carry any content and not have to pay a license to turn it on. Because I might want to just use it as a test signal. Interesting. You didn't hear that from me, and this is not being recorded, right? <laughs> just to the whole world. Just to the whole world. That's. <laughs> I play the devil's advocate. We'll, ask, we'll ask everyone to keep it quiet. Okay, okay. so um, my official response is no comment. <laughs> no, to me, I mean, but that makes assumptions about your environment, right? You could still be running an old CMTS. You could have a combiner in there. You could have a QAM, edge QAM. If you could have, you could pull a Tom Williams and run a rubidium stabilized, you know, tone oh, out yeah. there. Oh, you obviously could inject pretty much anything. Exactly. exactly. Generator, you know. It could just be a CW from an analog generator, which doesn't cost you a QAM license. Exactly. 
but that's no fun. It's fun to see content. <laughs> yes, that looks much better. No, but or, you're or an OFDM channel all the way out to one point two one eight gig. Yeah, that's money, and we uh, we do that here. We'll run, uh, we'll uh, stand up uh, an OFDM channel wherever it is you're running it, and use our DOCSIS population of spectrum analyzers, which right now is just tipped 50% of every DOCSIS device on Comcast footprint has a spectrum analyzer minimum one gig of spectrum visibility to it. And so the cool thing about this, and I, uh, I'll go geeky on you guys, you know what NyQuest uh, uh, theorem is all about. You can instruct the FFT parameters on the spectrum capture engine to hit that thing at exactly the right place at, at 25 kilohertz resolution bandwidth and you can sample the OFDM subcarriers with excruciating detail and accuracy. So, I mean, if there's a roll-off in there, you can literally see uh, see the pilots, you can see the PLCs, you can discern a lot about the performance before you even deploy a single 3.1 cable motor. So there's a lot of intrinsic value in your existing population there. And you're just talking about the, the full-band capture capabilities of deployed DOCSIS 3.0 modems, Larry. Is that correct? Exactly. Absolutely, yes. And, uh, and so now, I'm not saying we don't sweep and we don't balance, but what we don't do is go sweep and balance where we don't have to, right? So um, think about the operational efficiency. If I have 10,000 route miles, and I'll um, talk about more, more about that a little later in the show, Brady, but 10,000 route miles, and we use this technique – you can, you, you can basically weed out, you know, 80% of the network that's not of interest. This is perfect from here. So then now you can focus your very limited and high-value resources out in the field to go fix the problems. So spend time fixing problems and not time finding problems. Sure. So what you're doing is you're weeding it out. You're saying because we don't see any suckouts, we don't see any peaking, we don't see any noise, roll-off, et cetera, on all of these full band capture modems that are deployed in, in this you know, X amount of plant, there's no sense in going out and sweeping this X amount of plant because the modems aren't reporting any problems back to us. Is that, is that an accurate assessment? That would be a foolish waste of time to go sweep perfectly good plant. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, what used to crack me up is, um, you know, we always squab over a DB here and there. And then originally people were balancing based on CW carriers at the high and low end. I'm like, how do two carriers represent your entire spectrum? If you have roll-off on both ends, you could be balancing, you know, changing your pad based on 3 dB low. So now it's all humped up in the middle, which creates <laughs> more power and more distortions. Yeah, of so course. Like, based on a sweep trace and getting the median or the average power where you need it to be and, and normalized, that really, to me, makes more sense. If it rolls off, it rolls off. You don't pick the whole thing up just because so there's two endpoints at zero reference point. You know, now you're creating a hump in the middle. So I, 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 I've been doing it for a long time, and I always thought that, you know, looking at the sweep trace as a balancing technique was much better than, you know, just relying on a couple CW carriers. Yeah, or, or you're missing lots of suckouts in between. And yeah. I think like what Larry's talking about is exactly – the, the huge benefits that we're seeing in, in advancements in PNM, where we can use full band capture modems to see huge areas of the plant. We have visibility all the way to the subscriber's home, not just to a sweep point that might be off of a, an amplifier or a tap, but we're seeing right into the subscriber's home any impairment that may exist between the head end and that 
and many, many, many individual subscribers' homes. So it's, it's huge. Yeah, it brings up a good point too. Is you know, originally I thought this whole talk, and I always thought P and M. We think P and M is upstream pre EQ, but P and M is everything now, right? It's downstream, it's upstream. Upstream spectrum analysis, full bandwidth capture, pre equalization. Um, I think the modems, the three one modems, can generate an upstream uh, sweep trace practically, like a sweeping carrier. I've even used that in a lab one time to prove that the modem itself, its internal filter, was bad because I had eight-channel upstream bonding and upstream three and four were sucked out and it was the internal filter, had a 4285 filter that was kind of overlapping itself. Mm. It was sucking out right where the cutoff, where the rollout, or the, where the, cut, where the uh, crossover was. Yeah, crossover. Yeah, so I mean, it was kind of interesting is this is the type of functionality we have in the modems now and it's how do we utilize that? What else do we got in the 3.1 modems? Uh, I mean, where are we going with this uh, this hangout, Brady? <laughs> I'm trying to segue us. <laughs> so, well, I mean, basically, we, we keep on getting more and more advanced features. It's uh, what do we what what do we want to talk about next, or what what do we want to reveal next? Let's talk about the upstream. I mean, this is the secret sauce. It's the Achilles heel of cable. Um, I, I'll share some numbers with you, just off the cuff here. You know, from the maintenance technician perspective, not necessarily that we're talking bucket trucks, not vans. Um, you know, it's upwards of, you know, conservatively, depending on the area, 70%, upwards of 85, 90% of the time that a network maintenance technician is spending out in the field is is the uh, in the pursuit of return noise and mitigation, of course. And by mitigation, that may or may not mean fixing it. Uh, a lot of, uh, just have to be real frank about it, a lot of times we we can't get access. Uh, maintenance tech may not have, you know, fulfillment tech. Or maintenance tech might not want to go into a house. House is most of where the ingress comes from. That is the Achilles heel of cable, and there's a lot of a uh, lot of um, inertia on that. And how we chase it and what we do about it um, is evolving quickly. So let's uh, let's shift gears to upstream uh, upstream in general. Okay. So, so I think we're doing a, a lot of things with upstream. We do upstream spectrum analysis. We, we use the CMTS to do that. Um, we've just pushed through a new uh, ECO, a cable labs, this part of the DOCSIS 3.1 specification that will allow us to have a standard MIB for all CMTSs to do upstream, triggered upstream spectrum analysis with all DOCSIS 3.1 CMTSs. Uh, so that's that's nice. It gives us a everyone has a common MIB, a common a common software development platform uh, for across all CMTSs. Now there will be some time before vendors can implement this, so there's some excitement there. We'll have that that capability in it. Remote and and what's that? I assume remote buy as well. Uh, so so that is a really really good point to bring up, John. Is you know, it's one thing to have a head end where all signals are culminating at, and you can put whatever type of equipment you want. But when you talk about a remote PHY, uh, where you have, so, you know, and, and if, if you don't have an understanding of a remote PHY, you basically are taking the, the RF portion and the back portion of your CMTS and putting it out in, in a node, right? And you're taking your RF signals at that node, at the fiber node, you're converting them from RF back to data and then transporting that data optically, no longer as analog, but as digital, true digital data back to your CMTS core. 
So at this point, if you want to do any return path analysis of, you know, what is, where's my noise coming from? It has to be done at that, at that, at that fiber node. So now, like to your point earlier, John, we can't be hanging a bunch of test equipment off of a fiber node. We have to be okay, communicating. Put a path track out there. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be that's expensive place to put it. So now we want to be able to communicate with that remote five. If we know we have a noise problem out there, you know, maybe we have some really high uncorrectable code word errors, and we believe we have noise ingress. We want to be able to communicate with that remote five, either SNMP or IPDR, or maybe some other communication method, and say. You know, if my return is 5 to 42, 5 to 85, or even 5 to 200 megahertz, where's the noise at? What type of noise is it? Is it impulse noise? Is it, is it HPNA? Is it some other type of noise? I want to be able to see it, just like using a regular spectrum analyzer or return path monitoring system. And that's what this, what this basically new ECO that went through gives us the ability to, 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 to monitor that remote phi without having to hang heavy and expensive test equipment on with the fiber node itself. So this is this is awesome capability. I mean, it's good to hear, but I mean, I have experience with the CMTS spectrum analysis and I told people it's never meant to replace a real spectrum analyzer because of the, the, uh, the how quickly it could capture, say, impulse noise. Um, because with the spectrum analysis, it was SNMP based. So how quickly are you getting SNMP responses? So getting that SNMP and how quickly is it, what is the resolution bandwidth, the video bandwidth? It's, I couldn't do zero span mode. So uh, I don't know if this ECO uh, addresses the, how quickly it can capture. Can it really capture impulse noise? That's my point. I never could really capture impulse noise before. Yeah, yeah. if you're lucky. Hey, um, if, if full fairness and disclosure, um, John, can you talk just a minute on your early uh, uh, involvement with, I believe it was the CBR, or no, I'm sorry, what, what was the tool? CBT, Cisco, yes. Yeah, Cisco Broadband Troubleshooter. So basically it was Cisco proprietary MIB, but we've given it out to a lot of people. Thank and you, it really you. was... Um, you know, the information from the Broadcom or TI Intel upstream chip um, and then putting, making a GUI to pull that information. And, and I've even, to get a faster response, I could set my CM, my SNMP to zero, <laughs> polling zero, meaning do SNMP as fast as I could. But it was still an FFT. Um, it was still grabbing information and it was great for seeing the spectrum. Uh, it was great for tagging a specific MAC address. And because the CMTS does all the timing, you could also say, show me the upstream with no bursts. So that was a great functionality because, you know, PathTrack couldn't do that. PathTrack had no idea about timing of many slots, but the CMTS does. So you could say, you know what, show me the ingress under the carrier. I've even used the CBT to say, let me show you the upstream, upstream port with no traffic. And if I saw traffic, then I knew it was bad timing or it was actually upstream that was meant for a different port and poor isolation in the head end bleeding over to the wrong port. So I was able to kind of make some, you know, deductions from seeing and knowing how it worked. Um, but I was never able to capture impulse noise. Maybe it would once in a while. And the one thing I was always asking for that I never could do, and maybe Brady could mention if, if we are going to do this, I don't know if the chipsets will do this, 
I want to go below five megahertz. I need to see AM radio noise that's causing laser clipping. So I want to go down to zero or 0.5 or 500 kilohertz or something like that. And then all the way up to say 85 now. I mean, we can do up to 85 now. And, and even on the chipsets we have installing now, we'll go to 204 megahertz because their DOCS is 3.1. So I don't know if that kind of covers what you're after. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. No, so it's a great uh, history about, and here's kind of segue to talking about using the CMTS burst receiver to do spectrum analysis. The capability has been there for a long, long time. What year would you say, John, that you started CBT or was first came to your attention? Yeah, yeah. Shit. Uh, <laughs> I've been there in Cisco 15 years now, and that was there probably 12, 10 wow. to 12 years. Yeah. Now, uh, so, Brady, um, as a uh, uh, not intentionally plugging your product, but Nimble does that exactly that, right? You expose the uh, the CMTS burst receiver MIPS to offer kind of a low cost intrinsic spectrum analysis using the burst receiver. Yes, it's exactly correct. And, and some of the things that John mentioned, like being able to trigger on a SID or a MAC address, so or a, a time when no modems are transmitting, so you can see just the noise floor, the, all that functionality is there. Um, to, to John's point, right now with the existing CMTSs, you can't trigger on burst noise. Uh, one of the things that we've we've done in the in the new MIB for DOCSIS 3.1 is that you have the ability to set thresholds. So ideally, we can capture that burst noise that we can't do in, in DOCSIS 2.0 or 3.0 CMTSs. Yep. And so the reason good. that I ask is um, we, uh, so we do this at Comcast too. It's obviously uh, very intriguing to be able to use a burst receiver because any, um, in particular, uh, that um, the facilities real estate is really getting uh, uh, into a crunch now that we're, you know, kind of going through these architecture migrations and these things. Our head ends are uh, basically golden space now. So um, rack space is important, and, um, and we really like having the CMTS burst receiver's knowledge of mini-slot timing and for the reasons that you mentioned. Um, it's pretty cool to be able to see under the carrier truly at exactly the moment when there should be nobody transmitting. Um, and so you don't have to do min-hold tricks and all this other stuff that we've done over the years uh, you know, to try and perceive you know, you know, things about the spectrum. But I'll be honest, we uh, that has limitations too. Uh, burst noise is one of them. You know, we have dynamic range problems, um, and depending on how people set up their CMTSs, what the uh, nominal level of the receive level is set up for, um, you know, people padding or no padding, and it's just all over the place um, when you have such a diverse environment um, at the burst receiver. So, you know, we're having challenges with that too. Um, but very much looking forward to the 3.1 hooks that are coming uh, with. Uh, it's just going to be extraordinary. Very much game changer from the upstream perspective. Uh, um, one other issue, uh, and this I think is probably segue to um, the other stuff. What else is out there, Brady? Um, using the CMTS is fantastic, but that doesn't solve for like uh, fiber deep nodes where now we're starting to do pretty heavy combining at the CMTS ports, instead of having to drive out to one or two nodes, basically to isolate the ingress point or the leg of the node, geez, now you got to go out to minimum four nodes before you can even begin to troubleshoot out in the field. Right. So I'm, I'm going to share just a couple of slides here. Um, from We're, we're going to be doing a, a press release at Cable Tech Expo. Um, so I don't want to go into do too many 
details here on this, um, but I just I want to I want to share this because it's it's some really cool stuff. We'll just call this for now PM Remote <coughs> Monitor. Um, so if you can, can you see you guys see what I have on my screen? Got it. Yeah, got it. Awesome. Yeah. So we have this little silver box here, and uh, it's, it's a cable modem, but as you see, it has it has additional ports on it. And the, the little cable modem you would put into an amplifier. So, so one of the port is gonna go, uh, this main cable modem port here is gonna go into a test point on the amplifier where it can see both downstream and upstream. The other ports are going to, are going to be monitoring uh, test points in the amplifier itself. So you can see uh, the upstream and also more importantly, the downstream. And so what I, this would be the, that actual device installed in an amplifier. And the, so again, this is just a cable modem. It's a full band capture cable modem. Uh, port one here would be the cable modem port itself. So uh, here, what I'm showing here, I just did a screen capture on it. I, I didn't want to do a live demo because that always creates problems and takes a while. And uh, so I thought I'd do a screen capture. We can see we have a pretty low noise floor on this port down at minus 50 dB MV. So we have pretty decent dynamic range. You can see the forward channel here. Uh, so this goes all the way up to a gig. So to your point, John, uh, we can see, you know, whatever the forward channels are and the return channels. <clears throat> And then we can we can also see the modem temperature. So this is in degrees Celsius. If you click on it, it turns to degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, it's nice to see the the basically in. So this is installed in a fiber node or maybe a trunk amplifier, bridge amplifier. You can monitor the temperature while you're going. And now we want to look at one of the other ports. And uh, you know we have we we we've been told that there's a bunch of modems out on port four. Uh, so when we look at, I'm going to, the next slide is going to show you the difference between port one and port four on this amplifier. And we're going to see that the, the noise floor goes up pretty significantly. Wow. So now, this is, this is port four on this, on this same exact amplifier. So like to what Larry was saying, you know, normally if we wanted to compare the noise difference on two ports of the same amplifier, you would have to go out and pull the pad on this amplifier and see what the difference is back at the CMTS. But now if you install this little this little tiny silver box, it's a very tiny modem. And this modem is powered off the power pack in the, the amplifier itself. You can just toggle back between port one and see, hey, port one, really low noise floor, no problems. If I could also see the forward pass signals, Port four. This is why my modems are offline on port four. We've got we've got a really high noise floor. So I mean, you know, how are you plugged in? You're plugged into the test points. Yeah, we're plugged into the test points in in an amplifier. Bi-directional on the outside of the diplex motor. I, I I guess it almost seems like you'd have to be plugged into an upstream reading and a downstream output test point. It's, so it's going to depend on the amplifier. You know, some amplifiers have bi-directional test points. So you're going to see the return forward and return. Some amplifiers, you're just going to be able to, you're going to plug into the return path test points. And so then you're only going to receive it, see the return on it. Um, but I, I actually wonder if, like, if you had that case, if you just plugged into the upstream reading test point, and then you kind of eyeballed, you, you assume a certain amount of, isolation on a diplex motor, you would still see the downstream, right? Yeah, you're I mean, still going to get you... some downstream level, but it's going to be, you know, on a 20 dB down test point. 
So you're going to still still see some. And it's, this is just an example of that that same port port four. Um, you can see, you know, not only is there a lot of uh, in, uh, ingress noise, but there's something uh, there's something serious going on with the forward on this as well. Um, so you know, it's it's impacting both the return, letting a lot of ingress in, and it's also seriously impacting the forward because uh, you can you can see there's a, a good bit of ringing going on here. And, and yeah, so that's just brilliant, Brady. Tremendous, tremendous diagnostic capability without ever having to to open up the amplifier. I mean, we know there's a problem on on this one port of the amplifier. You know, the other ports are okay. So so right away we have the ability to make a diagnosis, know which amplifier and which leg of the amplifier is having the problem, all from the comfort of your desk. And then nice. send the right person to the right place. And so, to be clear, what, what's really intriguing by this uh, example you pose here, Brady, is that, uh, you know, the age-old uh, Achilles heel of cable is that port four right now, you have a, a port level resolution of where the noise is. Um, before this kind of a solution, you would see, you would have a node level resolution, or at least at the combining level, you'd see the noise getting in, but you would have no idea which... Uh, which leg is, is getting in so that from the field perspective, it's a trip out to that active. Well, actually you start at the node and you begin breaking it down to the leg. You're disrupting your customers by pulling pads and you're, uh, you're driving trucks to places, um, dividing and conquering and block and tackling. And then eventually you get there, this short circuits, all of that stuff. Yeah. So we're, we're super excited. There'll be a, a press release about it uh, right at Expo. So uh, you'll find us. You'll find us on the show floor demoing this product at Expo. Very exciting. I'll be, I'll be there. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because we we've, we've tried to push status monitoring forever, and now I think maybe with the technology and lower cascades, and the importance of everything, and the cable modem, and the inexpensive way of doing it, this makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, it's yeah, super it's, cheap. It's commodity technology. So, <laughs> yeah, timing is everything. And it's funny. Uh, so, I'll be just honest with everybody. I've seen this before. I'm in love with it. It's fantastic. Um, and uh, my understanding is uh, we have seen folks with this thing running as low as 1.5 watts. The heat signature is not basically non existent if you have it mounted properly to the shell or the amplifier or node or wherever you're going to put it. Um, that. Uh, uh, the cost is uh, commodity-based. It's mind-boggling. But um, it reminds me of kind of uh, when the iPad took off, right? The iPad was not the first tablet ever invented. There have been tablets since the 80s, um, but the technology wasn't right. It took the stars aligning for touchscreens and speed and uh, giving, doing away with, you know, the uh, – the stylus and it, it took everything to get right before it, it basically transformed the way we compute. And I see this as being one of those opportunities in cable, you know, just the timing and technology is finally right. So, very exciting. Hey Brady, was there a certain resolution bandwidth setting on that? Or is it so set? This is a cable modem. So you can, you know, you can go right now we have a program to go as low as 30 kilohertz uh, the default is 100 kilohertz, and and you or you can set it at 300 kilohertz. Those are our three default settings. Um, but 
you know, just as uh, you, you can change the bin size on it using the standard DOCSIS MIBS to, to uh, change to other resolution kilohertz bandwidths if you would like to. Nice. Yeah, very nice. Um, so let's be, let's take a devil's advocate view here. I know we're pushing up on close to an hour, but, um, uh, you know, I see trouble with this. And um, like, like John alluded, um, you know, status monitoring and transponders have been around for a long time. And arguably, you know, some, some places and systems have just let them lapse and haven't used them. And just because you got it there doesn't save the day, right? You have to integrate it with your operations and it has to become a thing. Um, what makes us think that this is really right? What makes us think that we're going to start sticking things out in our plant, activating them, and now have yet another point of maintenance and power consumption and thermal considerations that, and that aren't going to someday break or become out of date that need to be removed and maintained? Um, what makes us think we're going to actually deliver the promise this time? So I, th I think one of the things that we have going for us is that we already have some proof of concepts out there in status monitoring modems that are in power supplies. So we, we have proof that this works because we have a lot of power supplies with cable modems in them that are being used as full band capture devices today. And we have a lot of cable modems out there. I mean, people are buying cable modems and putting these next to cable supply or power That's supplies, true. commercial cable modems, because true, yeah. they don't want to pay the little bit more money for the the uh, the status monitoring, uh, you know, sort of uh, ruggedized versions uh, that come with a power supply. So that kind of gives me a, a really good feeling that if that works and we're, we're, we're buying DOCSIS 3 status monitoring devices, putting them in power supplies, and those are working really well, we're getting good data off of those, then this is the next evolution where we're taking a cable modem, an industrial grade cable modem, putting a four port switch on it, and now putting it in an amplifier. This, this is just taking it one step further. It's and genius, genius so it's, it's gonna be, I believe solid. You know, will we have some growing pains? Probably. Will we overcome those growing pains? Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, and so to that note, I will say, I've seen that at Comcast too. We have really fantastic status monitoring. We have transponders, we have systems. But one of the motivators that I've seen individual technicians and systems taking that, put, the, put a commodity DOCSIS box out there as a measuring point, isn't necessarily the cost or the trouble or expense. It's really because it seamlessly integrates with all the tools we got already, yeah. right? If you drop one of those out into a power supply and it's, a, you know, it now magically participates in all of our Comcast tools, Spectra, Flux, Last Tower, and it becomes basically um, kind of a non-event to extend uh, the capabilities of the network monitoring without having to swivel to yet another application just because it's plain old DOCSIS. Yeah, to your point, I mean, we've had many things in the past, like you said, tablets and stuff that didn't work because they weren't part of a standard. Uh, Apple's iPad worked so well because it was part of the Apple ecosystem. It worked with iTunes and everything else Apple. This works so well because it's part of DOCSIS. It's part of the DOCSIS ecosystem. It works with SNMP. It works with all the tools that you currently have. That's what makes it so elegant. Exactly. I love it. Thanks for that. Anything you know, else? I don't, I don't know the whole functionality of it, Brady, but I'm thinking, you know, as a cable modem, uh, I'd like a cable modem to see on the downstream, you know, between minus five, plus five. And I'd like to transmit about 45. 
So if you're just plugging it into a node through a 20 dB test point and, might, and you don't put extra padding, it could be transmitting at, say, 25. If it goes off the rail at some time, it can go up to 55 and then cause laser clipping of itself, you know. So I always like to keep my modem transmitting close to 45 so there's not much range left if it does go kind of crazy, you know, it starts babbling. So 45, 48 would be good. But I'm thinking also you can't control which MSO, where they put their DOCSIS channels, on the low end or the high end. If you come up a downstream test point, you're going to have tilt. I also I think your I'm going to call it your black box silver box. Your silver black box. <laughs> <laughs> your silver black box. I almost think you should put a, a cable simulator in there because you're always going to see tilt from the downstream test point. So you could probably put 10, 12, 15 dB of cable simulation to flatten it out and then padding in your black box so that you know, I mean, basically all nodes are probably going to come out, you know, distribution levels nowadays because there's really no trunk line. You could probably figure it out, right? So I don't know what you're doing about that. Uh, if you're going to have pencil pads or something inside that black box, maybe a, a, a <laughs> go back to diddle sticks. Bring back the diddle sticks. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no not too bad. I got an idea. Let me throw two cents in. Let's go with software. You can normalize it. You, got, you, no, you can you can unsell with software if that's really a requirement. And uh, of too much data is a good thing. Yeah, but you see, you got my point, right? I mean, having hitting a decent downstream level between minus five plus five. Uh, I don't want this device. It's a cable modem, but I've seen where cable modems are not set up properly and they cause problems. So I don't want this to cause a problem. Yeah, I understand what you're saying with uh, transmitting too high. That that's something that can be done with. Uh, proper installation guidance. But as, as as Larry just mentioned, maybe if you had software controlled pad EQ internally, then you could adjust whatever you want. Yep. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, so I love this. What you have, let me recap this for you, make sure I interpret this property properly. Um, basically, uh, a module. Um, and it looks uh, like you can power it and connect it up as a dock. So it's just a Honey, I shrunk the cable modem into a nice tight little box. What precludes you from sticking that into a power supply cabinet? So it goes into a power supply cabinet. Could be, you know, just like you're saying, a, a transponder. Monitor your downstream, your upstream. You can put this anywhere you'd like, as long as you have 24 volt DC powering, you know, a wall ward, even. No kidding. So in theory, well, you have, um, well, you have no for the power supply cabinet. There's really no RF at the power supply cabinet, right? I mean, we're trying to look at RF, aren't we? You have a, you can run a coax drop. Exactly. I mean, from a tap maybe or something like that, right? Yeah. Well, we do that for transponders today. Okay. Yeah. I just see that. I see it more as a node functionality. Best bang for your buck being mm -hmm. in the node. Okay, uh, how else could you could put it in an amplifier that would give you, let's say hypothetically a use case. If I have a uh, N plus four or five cascade and I'm busy with a really noisy node and it's in high um, density residential area with MDUs and loose connectors are killing me all the time and I'm rolling trucks constantly pulling pads trying to isolate legs on this N plus five with all these uh, through legs and such. Uh, and there's tons of splits, and it's just a total pain to maintain this thing and, and constantly mitigate noise. Hypothetically, couldn't you embed one in every amplifier and the node if you really wanted to in the cascade? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you're bringing up another point that I hadn't considered before, where MDU environments, where you have big clusters, big closets full of um, connectors and splitters. Actually, an MDU might be a good place to put these for monitoring, where you cluster many of these together in a shelf. So uh, these these become like awesome monitoring systems. That's it makes MDUs have maybe three or four risers, right? You might be able to segregate yeah, so it makes it makes uh, you know MDUs are notoriously difficult to troubleshoot, especially like with a, a PNM system where it's difficult because your your spans where you have echo cavities are very very short. So having something where you can start monitoring different floors and different legs very quickly and troubleshooting problems in in high density buildings, multi dwelling units, this becomes something that's because it's low cost. It doesn't cost a lot to deploy many modules in this, so it becomes a very very the potentials on, the, on this become limitless for deploying it. Yeah. Uh, thank you, generic module. We love it. Uh, so um, let, let's think about what you said. MDU is a fantastic use case. I, I mean, I, I just kind of posed it, but I didn't think about it that way. Um, but you're right. We could put it on a rack in the cabinet uh, at the uh, in an MDU complex and immediately just automatically start dividing the problem into, you know, um, spans and legs without having disrupt, to disrupt the entire complex. And while you're, while you're rack mounting it, you may also want to put it in your head end or your hub site. And so there's, there's many places that if it's rack mounted, you could do a lot with this device. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, um, and not just upstream, but also downstream, uh, depending Correct. obviously on the capability of the test points. But man, could you imagine a head end instrumented full test point upstream and downstream visibility in real time? Uh, with yeah, it does, such it does a high for up to a gigahertz. It does forward path and return path monitoring all in one device. Unbelievable. So. Yeah, I mean, it might, not, it might not work in line extenders with flat lids, right? Because there's no space. You're probably talking more like uh, uh, amplifiers that have a, a lid that has sp a space. I don't know. Really, how thick is that thing? Uh, it's it's shy of an inch. I think it's maybe three three quarters no. of an inch or less. I, I no, actually thick. It's maybe even less than three. It's th the one I saw was a quarter inch thick. Oh, was it a quarter inch? Okay, I, I haven't measured it. So, yeah, they're, it's very thin actually. So, it's it it probably will fit in the line extender lid. Uh, but I don't know. Right, I'm being coy. I've seen it in a line extender. You have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, not, not all line extenders, but some it will work. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Very nice. So, so as you mentioned, being devil's advocate, you know, you talk about it's rack mount, it has extra test points and all that, but what's going to keep someone saying, well, why would I put this in a head end when I just put a modem in a head end? It's a modem. I have a modem. So why would I put this in? What does it give me that's more so than just a modem? Uh, one thing that I noticed about the uh, at least three of those uh, ports on the RF switch is they're uninhibited by the diplex filter that you do not get from a cable modem. Yeah. That's, that's what I was leading to. <laughs> yeah, that's the secret sauce is you don't have the diplex rejection in the return band. It's, and it's, uh, it's also density and power. Because you've got multiple ports, you'd have to have multiple modems. You don't have a diplex filter there, and they're very low power. Yes. Now, if if you uh, do a, a head end or a hub site, is it can it be one ten volt? Can you plug it in with one ten volt? 
Well, you would have to have, yeah. have just have a power supply to feed DC to it. Okay. That might be tricky. Where did you come up with the power supply? <laughs> oh, geez, that's funny. You guys are great. I, I got to be honest with you. I know we're coming up on an hour. I still have a little time, uh, but I... It's such a thrill for me to be here with you guys. Uh, I've known y'all for a long time. We're all part of birds of the feather with this P&M business. I can always count on seeing all of you uh, at Expo and um, the Comcast conferences, or sorry, uh, Cable Labs conferences. And, uh, and we can talk for hours and hours on this stuff because it's all of our passion here. So it's really a pleasure to be here with you. I've known you guys for a long time. I'm huge fans. Thanks a million. Yeah. And Larry, you're doing a you're doing a great paper at Expo this year, right? That's uh, oh yeah, th- thanks. I didn't want to do the cheap plug, but because he brought it up, yes. Uh, Thursday, the last day. Thanks, uh, thanks SCTE Council for doing this to me. But they always, I think they like to do a bookend kind of thing. Um, it's the very last day, the very last thing on Thursday, and I. Uh, um, but, it, but it's cool. Uh, it's kind of an institution. It's the PNM. Uh, you know. Uh, conversation. And this this year, I'm going to be doing a, uh, a pretty con- comprehensive case study, which uh, we'll talk about a lot of the stuff we've talked about here, um, a lot of gory detail about the financial aspects and the, the things that have been traditionally hard to answer. We put a lot of energy into that about cost versus benefit, P&L, uh, how, and uh, barriers of adoption and all of these things. So I would encourage anybody to come say hi. If you, if you listen to this podcast, mention it. I'd love to hear that. Uh, I know there's thousands of people that, uh, that do tune in occasionally to uh, your great show. Brady. All right. I recommend everyone catch Larry's show or Larry's uh, presentation at Expo. Stay for the last day. John, I think you and I are both out this year on uh, we're not presenting, right? What? No, I didn't. I didn't submit anything. Yeah, yeah. One, so we're, taking, we're taking this one off. So we'll you make sure you guys, cheers, Larry. You just come up on stage with me because you deserve as much credit because <laughs> you guys are pioneers. And I, I think uh, are you, are you, Larry, are you going to cover Doxus 3-1 stuff as well for p uh, it, It's uh, like a couple of pages. Um, there's, uh, there's some great stuff. Uh, another plug for uh, my colleagues at Comcast. Um, uh, old fr- great friend of mine, Rob Thompson, will be uh, going over kind of a very novel, not Doxus 3.1 specific, uh, but that's on the first day. So they, I said bookends. Don't come in late and don't leave early because you're going to miss a session with Rob Thompson on Monday. So don't come in late. Go see Rob and Maurice and then stay all the way through and come see me. And by all means, anybody out there, we're all friends here. Look me up. I'd love to go have a beer and a pizza with anybody who loves PM as much as we all do here. It's supposed to be a pretzel and a Philly cheesesteak. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Hey, thanks so much for your time. Great information. Have a great weekend. We'll catch you later. Oh, right. <laughs> thanks, guys. See thanks you. a bunch.